Hello, hello, hello. Yep, I've got I've got vibration waves. Vibration waves. Waves. I've got waves of vibration. Yes. I can see my waves of vibration. Good vibrations. Good vibrations. Positive vibrations. Exactly. There we go. We got there in a roundabout way, as we always yeah. do every week. Yeah. <laughs> Julia, how are you? I'm very good, actually. I'm very, very good. You will be pleased <clears throat> because I've been thinking about uh, mittens this week. Have you? Yeah. My little mittens. Well, You're... he's not little. He's quite big. He's a big cat. Mittens, come on. You've posted some very pensive pictures of mittens this week. He's been looking at you in that funny way that he does where what did you say this week he was said he he was looking at me like i was doing something weird yeah yeah he looks at me like i'm the strange one um where he's sitting like a lemur he he sort of does this thing where he sits like a lemur on his like on his bottom uh, but sort of upright i think it's when he's sort of licking his tummy yeah cleaning his tummy but then he sort of looks up and then he's got his sort of paws up in the air. And, and he's caught. He's caught in that sort of mid-human, mid-lemon pose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite ridiculous. But yeah, he sort of looks at me like, what, what, what are you looking at? What, you know, what's, what's not normal What's the problem? This? Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking about mittens because I had a very nice social media message from somebody called Colin Cherry this week. Hello, Colin. And Colin said, you know me, I'm always banging on about get some time outside. Have you been outside? Have you had your 30 minutes? Have you been in a green space? Blah, blah, blah. And Colin said that he had indeed spent a few hours in his allotment, fresh air, unpolluted organic vegetables. These are his words, not mine, although it could easily be me. Um, And then he said how his his cat taught him to stretch his back back in 2010 because he's had years of back pain and back aches and he's over the years he's taken so many painkillers and had acupuncture the whole lot but it was the cat who saw him struggle that taught him how to get out of bed and then that made me think obviously about lovely mittens and how inspirational mittens is to you but it also (laughs) not not that we could not that there's much we can learn from mittens i think in terms of posture (laughs) and pose not at all but it did make me think about a story it jogged a memory about a story about a man called Joseph Pilates. Now, you've heard of Pilates, the exercise, haven't you? I have, yes. I, a good friend of mine is a Pilates instructor who uh, started her career in Pilates after having um, a slip disc. So very similar to our... Um, our friend Colin. Our, yeah, our friend Colin. Well... Um, with a bad back. Well, your friend, who's your friend? What's her name or his name? Her name's Trish. So Trish would not be a Pilates instructor if it were not for the man that Pilates is named after, Joseph Pilates. And Joseph Pilates, 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 you say tomato, I say tomato. (laughs) Joseph Pilates was an intern at a camp on the Isle of Man. And so I don't know that he was a prisoner of war, but obviously when war broke out, there would have been Germans uh, and, and other populations all around the world who suddenly were implicated in a way that perhaps they weren't expecting to be implicated yeah. obviously and he was he was this uh, german guy at the end of world war one he was in, in in this camp on the isle of man uh, and because of the conditions with which they were kept they were obviously in uh, confined spaces and he saw a cat stretch 
And it was the cat and the way it stretched. You know how they do that thing where they sort of Mm. go upwards and they're on all fours. And that inspired him to learn how to exercise in a confined space. And that was the very beginning of Pilates, as we all now know it all around the world isn't that interesting that is amazing yeah i mean it's a brilliant thing my wife's done pilates for many years and yeah like sort of engaging the core that's the sort of yeah it's the core and it's doing small motions and minimal Mm. movements that have the maximum impact and there's a little bit of i think there's crossover between yoga yoga and pilates yogas i might come up with a new that's what i'm gonna do (laughs) i'm gonna do julia bradbury's yogas book (laughs) the mixture of both um but yeah i love little stories like that uh and how you know we wouldn't we wouldn't be here today talking about it if it wasn't for something potentially bad i think it's fair to say that that joseph pilates wasn't having fun being no no and i think that's that whole thing isn't it that we, we we've talked about before is like positive things coming out of very difficult times and i mean our guest today can talk about that absolutely oh completely epitomizes mm. that very thing because our guest today is a young man called henry fraser who had a tragic accident a terrible accident when he was a young boy he will tell the story better than us but the reason he's on a little bit of positive this week is because he has absolutely mastered the art of turning something very very bad into a very positive thing in his life and he has changed his life and the way he lives and his and his outlook because of something that the rest of us would go oh you know let's maybe we should press pause now because of it that's how bad it was and he hasn't done that he's done exactly the opposite yeah incredible courage and such an inspiration just talking to him hearing him retell what happened to him um, and he was only 17 as well at the time. This is so young, isn't it? Yeah, 17. You think about it like that. And I was sort of thinking about that more, like the fact that he was so young and having to deal with this massively life-changing incident. And I think what's, what strikes you about Henry Fraser when you listen to him, and certainly for us after our conversation, he mm. was only 17 and he's still only a young man and how wise he is. Yeah. And that steep learning curve... Uh, that he had to go through um but he's he's really really sort of put it all together so well and he has this book called the power of you which is his second book his first book was a memoir and this book is much more motivational it's about how do you accept the past and bad things in the past and how do you move forward and he really is an example for everybody for all of us yeah absolutely yeah I mean I love chatting to Henry and um, I've been a big fan I've sort of watched him his career sort of blossom on social media seeing his paintings I mean he's amazing amazing paintings and we shouldn't forget to mention about those because they're absolutely stunning and he does them with his mouth he's a mouth painter yeah he's a mouth artist Henry's a mouth artist and his his art is standout good regardless you know you would you would you would look at if you didn't know he was painting with his mouth, you would still be struck by the quality of his painting. But the fact that he is also painting with his mouth is yeah. the thing that blows you away. We should say that this episode was recorded via Zoom. So the audio quality isn't always as good as it could be. But hopefully it won't detract too much from what is a great conversation.
Mm. Well, Henry, it's great to finally get to chat to you because we've been trying to arrange various different podcasts to talk to each other on. So I'm really pleased that we've been able to work it out for this one. Could you take me back to 2009? Uh, I think you were 17 at the time, weren't you? And you were you were on holiday in Portugal. Um, and obviously something major happened. Yeah, so I was, um, you know, I said, I was 17 years old at the time. Um, and it was the end of our um, um, lower sixth year, end of year 12 end of our AS exam, so we had planned a kind of lads holiday away, go and, you know, blast some steam because stressful times at school, we, you know, we just have a good week away, away from the parents, just the boys. And yeah, we went down to the Algarve, south of Portugal. Um, and, you know, it was just having a great time, nights out, enjoying the beach, the sunshine, the warm air. And then one day we were just mucking around on the beach as we had done kind of every other day of that holiday, chucking the rug ball around, getting a bit hot in the 30 degree heat and decided to just go and cool off in the water. And, you know, I'd done the same thing the previous two days, three days I was there. But this time I'd run in and different part of the beach, gone into a different part of the sea. And where I thought, you know, the seabed would keep on kind of tapering off and get deeper and deeper, I've dived forward to what I thought was good depth and kind of went head first straight into the undulating seabed. And yeah, from that moment on, just obviously everything completely, completely changed. Um, I opened my eyes at that moment expecting to be kind of get up, stand up out of the water and walk back to the beach and join my mates. But I opened my eyes and just staring down at, um, staring down at the seabed basically through the kind of crystal clear Mediterranean water, just my arms just kind of, hanging in front of me, just, so I was just floating there, motionless in the sea, um, just completely able to move. At that point, you know, I thought the longer it went on, it was probably only a few seconds, but in my head, I thought, you know, it'd been ages and they've got to point where, you know, I thought that, that that was, that was maybe it for me. That was, that was time up, but I managed to, um, slightly turn my head to one side where I kind of caught the eye of a couple of my mates standing there. They'd just ask me if I was okay, and I just barely managed to get the word no out, and they quickly dragged me to the beach. And yeah, from that moment, everything, my whole life was completely new to me from that moment onwards. Henry, did you think from that moment onwards, the time after your children, after your, your friends had pulled you onto the beach, did you think, um, this is it, I can't move and was it sort of an instant realisation that you might not ever be able to move as you had moved before again? Um, at that point, no. It was, um, I was there lying on the beach and there was two um, rugby coaches who happened to be on the beach at the time, two English guys. And they came up and they took control of the situation. They are great and trained in first aid and all these things were trying to keep me calm and make sure my body was safe and aligned and they kind of, at the same point of time, they just thought in their head it was a like, compression injury. The spine had just become compressed. There was temporary nerve damage. It happens quite a regular thing in certain rugby injuries. So in my head, I had no idea. And it went on for a while. And it was only when um, I was actually in the hospital in Portugal when I was in Lisbon. I had been airlifted to Lisbon at the time. And I was going through kind of a lot of trauma at the time with surgeries and illness and all kinds of other things. And one of the senior nurses came up to me and he just said to me, kind of point blank, you'll never be able to move your arms and legs again. And, you know, I was 
kind of in, I was on a lot of medication at that point, a lot of drugs, my mind was, kind of wasn't really focused, but that, it still kind of hit me really hard. I was like, this. Well, it's a very, it's a very blunt way to be told yeah. that that, yeah. that news as well, isn't it? Sort of just out of the blue, not not a consultant holding your hand and explaining something to you, or anybody that you you love or care about. Just to, for it to come like that is it's pretty shocking. Yeah, it was it was a huge kind of thing for me to suddenly try and take in because um, I, I mean, the dogs and stuff had kind of kept things not kept things from me, but I wasn't fully kind of told the extent of things until that point. I knew obviously things were bad. I'd been through um, major surgeries. I had pneumonia. I had a pacemaker because my heart kept stopping. I had all these other other things going on. Um, but I didn't know the, kind of the full physical extent of what happened. So when he told me that, it was um, it was heavy and it was a lot. And at the time, I kind of, I guess, resented him mm. for saying it that way and saying it. But looking back, I can see that actually it's one of these things that I've, I've looking back, I'm actually glad he told me like that I'm glad he just told me point blank because it meant that you know there was no there was no sense of false hope there was no sense of me dreaming and wishing that something might be better or change of course I it took me a little while after before I'd accepted what happened but at that point I was still able to kind of looking back I can say oh actually I'm glad I did it and I think it was a big part of helping me accept what happened there wasn't any kind of dodging around it. It's, this is your life now. This is what you're going to have to deal with. What were your? What was the reaction from your family? When did your parents first learn about this? Because obviously your your friends, I guess, flew back after the holiday, and here you are left in hospital with this condition. How how did uh, the family unit gather around you then? So it was um, my parents had. So when I first went to hospital, I said to the. Um, I said to the staff there, I said, can you please call my parents and gave them the home number. But they'd actually, I've later, found, later down the line, that they'd actually never called home. It was actually a friend, uh, one of my friend's dads, who um, is a GP. One of the guys who was with me on holiday had called his dad to say something's happened to Henry. And then he'd call my parents to say something's happened, you need to find out, and he's trying to find out where Henry is. They knew that I'd gone to Lisbon, but they didn't know anything more than that. They had no idea. No one had no idea what hospital was, they didn't know anything. And again, they turned out my friends had spent the whole day trying to find out kind of what was going on. So my parents were calling around the hospitals in Lisbon, eventually found out where I was, and the next day booked, booked a flight the next day and flew straight out. And they only packed for what they thought would be like a few days at most. Turns out it was like two and a half, three weeks later, and I'm in their hotel room cleaning clothes in the same three items of clothing in the sink day after day. Um, but they they kind of were with me the whole period in Portugal. Really, obviously, they're so lucky that they would come out and sit with me and be with me through what were some pretty tough moments. Um, and yeah, it was obviously, we went, we went through a lot at that point together, mum, dad and I. Um, my three other brothers were all here at home. Kind of Obviously, my parents were actually my youngest brother. My younger brother was on holiday at the time, so my parents were kind of telling my older brothers, "Like, don't tell anyone. We don't want to get back to Don whilst he's on holiday. When he gets back, then tell him Henry. Something's happened to Henry." And all these things, but then it wasn't until my parents actually landed, until they'd seen me. Actually, before they'd even seen me, the surgeon had actually kind of pulled my parents into a side room and just sat them down 
and just said, um, sorry, Mr. Mr. Fraser, your um, your son severed his spinal cord. He's going to be a tetraplegic for the rest of his life. And like, mum just broke, lost it. Dad was just in shock because, again, they were just so point blank about it. But this um, doctor was incredible. The surgeon was amazing. He just kind of said to my parents, like, all right, we, like, you can feel this way, but, you know, this is this narrow time where you need to be there for Henry. This is a time where it's kind of, you have to be there to support him. Like, this is bigger than kind of anything you could have been through. So kind of that was a huge huge moment and it is kind of such generosity from that surgeon to kind of say that and take the time to kind of be there for them because he said he sees kind of 10 15 of these a year so it's not like he ever gets used to it but he's better at kind of dealing knowing what parents need to hear at that point and i'm just lucky that i've got incredible friends and family that you know are able to kind of be there for me and support me and kind of help me along the way what is your daily life like, Henry? So what's your routine? Explain what that diagnosis is to you, what it means for you. For me now, it means that kind of every, um, every single part of my day, everything I do takes just that much longer, that much more time. Um, it's kind of forced me to learn a lot of patience with kind of myself and people and other people. So my day always kind of, I wake up quarter past seven um, and then it's kind of a three hour process getting ready each morning. And you're lying in a, in a, in a bed and you have to be helped out of that bed and into yeah, a yeah. wheelchair. So it's from bed to um, I get hoisted in this kind of hammocks type crane contraption thing. Um, and yeah, then I go to the bathroom, kind of wherever, you know, morning routine in the bathroom and shower and all those things back to bed to get dressed and from bed back then into my wheelchair for the day. Um, so, you know, it's a long process and obviously medication in the morning and all these, all these types of things. Um, and then once I'm up, it's breakfast and then I kind of do my morning just emails and check my kind of socials and stuff and then maybe a bit of painting or if I've got a talk that day or something. And, you know, it's quite chill and I like to keep my routine. I like to keep things very kind of Mm. regulated it's kind of my, I guess my comfort in that way is those things I can keep control of and I know each day going into each day that those are things I don't have to worry about it gives me more it keeps me more calm it keeps my kind of anxiety down and so that if something new does pop up during the day something that kind of throws me a bit it's then that's the only thing that's thrown me it's not kind of a whole day where I'm always on edge or worrying about stuff um, and you, and, then, and yeah. presumably, you know, you need round-the-clock care. So you need somebody to help you do all of those things, to hoist you, to move you, to help you shower. Um, so your independence has been taken away from you because you've got to rely on other people. How do you mentally cope with that? Yeah, I have um, 24-hour care. So living carers and, um, yeah, constant, obviously, watch on my needs at all times. But, yeah, for me, it was... It was um, it was, it was tough at the start because before, um, before Max and I was very, always, very much always wanted to do everything for myself. I never asked help for anything at all. Um, kind of schoolwork, homework, I always wanted it to be my thing. I wanted it to be me. Um, but looking back now, I can kind of 
see that that's kind of an, an unhealthy way to do things. I was always trying to take it on myself without ever turning to anyone for help or talking to someone. So in a way, it's really helped me change that and accept that that kind of need for other people is just a natural part of my life now. It's not, it's not something I need to contend with or should try and contend with because there's no point in me, no point in me thinking that way because it would only be kind of detrimental to my way of thinking and how I kind of go into each day and how I want to, how I want to live each day and all those things. Um, so yeah, at the start, it did take some get used to and forced me to think very differently. Um, but it's, you know, now it's part and parcel of my life. And I guess at times we all need to kind of turn to others at some point and ask for help or things. Mine's just, I guess, more, more regularly in my day than others. I wanted to ask you about your artwork. Now, obviously, you know, you've become more well-known for doing that recently. How did you start doing that again? Because I think, was it something that you were into before? before your accident? Yeah, so when I was young, uh, especially when I was a really young boy, I loved kind of just drawing stuff or making things always. I mean, when I was young, my older two brothers were always outside, kind of rough and tumble outside, mucking around and, you know, and I was always, um, I was always indoors playing by myself a lot of time. And it'd always be, because I always just like building things, Duplo and Lego and, you know, it's kind of, Houses mostly for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why, but yeah, yeah. I've got an eight. Um, I've got an eight-year-old Henry. It's perfectly yeah. normal. It's t- I like <laughs> building houses out of Lego, exactly. even now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so as I grew older, um, when I started doing for GCSE and ASL, um, my rugby was always going well at the same time, and um, that required a lot of time and training. Uh, but art also requires a huge amount of time um, and it was hard to struggle both for me <clears throat> but at the time I just wanted to um, focus more on the rugby and going to the gym and doing those things so art became this kind of niggly thing that this kind of annoying little thing that followed me around and just nagged at me and, all, and I really and I hated it really at that point um, so if I had gone on to finish school I would have just dropped it and probably never seen it again never ventured back into it at any point but it was only Back in January 2015, I had a, a pressure sore on my back, and that's kind of a consequence of spinal cord injuries. Um, so I had to lay in bed, and I spent the first kind of week or so lying on side one side and turning over on the other to take pressure off my back and air it, and couldn't really sit up. And then eventually, when I was able to sit up in bed, I was able to call my iPad, and I control an iPad the same way I paint by. I have a mouth stick in my mouth, but with the iPad, I just have a stylus taped on the end. So that's how I type and write and do all these things. And then I just found this really basic drawing app that, you know, I wasn't doing the early stuff. It was so basic. It was not much at all, but I loved it. It was this kind of, this sense and loving that I had that, you know, when I was that young boy again, and the more I did it, the more this kind of feeling grew and grew. And, you know, looking back and how it started and kind of the progression it's taken, it started off as nothing much at all. It was, you know, it really was, I couldn't say it wasn't much, but I really like looking back at the really early stuff I did and thinking, oh, this is like the progress. So I'd like seeing that progress. I like seeing, and even if it's not progress, I'd like seeing the different steps that 
know, this journey's taken and where it's taken me. And again, you know, without my accident, without everything that's happened to me now, I would never have, never have rediscovered that same love and joy I had when I was that eight, nine-year-old boy. And I'm not just saying this, your art is exceptional. You, you have mastered a technique and your paintings are genuinely beautiful and they have depth and they, they, they have a real texture to them. And that just, I mean, I would feel lucky if I could do that uh, with, with both my hands. And it is extraordinary that you can achieve that complexity with, you know, how you've mastered that technique with your mouth. You must be so incredibly proud of that journey, as you call it. And um, do you have favourite pieces now that you've, that, you've, that you've done and that you enjoy more than others? Yeah, it's always... Um... I mean, to be honest, that answer always changes. Um, yeah, people ask me about my walks, and it's the same thing. It always changes, of course. But I suppose that certain yeah, yeah. certain pictures um, must must mark certain waypoints for you. I guess that's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, yeah. Little moments. There are there are, some, there are a few I think that are probably my favourites. Um, there's the first black and white kind of lion one I did, which was kind of a big turning point for me in how I was painting. Um, and what I was kind of wanting to do and the images I was wanting to paint at the time. Um, but there are bits I look along kind of what I've done and I've, I've never really been 100% satisfied with any, any one image I've done. Maybe one, but I'm not sure. But there are always certain elements that I like from paintings. And I like that, that I can kind of pick and choose and think, oh, how did I do that? What was the idea there? But I have the one that kind of has the most meaning for me um, is actually the one I did on uh, Mount Everest. One that's actually on the front cover of my new book. That for me was a big, um, just a big kind of lesson for me in terms of I decided to paint that image and I'd spent, when I went into it, I spent, I think it was like four days in a row, five hours each day. And that's five hours without a break, just straight painting. And I got to the end of it and I just, I really wanted to push through it and get it done and got to the point. And I wasn't, it was quite early on, I think it was only a year after I started painting. So I wasn't hugely confident and my movements were less confident, more kind of precise. And I was having to think about it a lot more, think about my neck, my back, and all whilst I was painting. And I got to the end and I was absolutely blitzed. I was so shattered. And I spent the next three days, I barely got out of bed for the next three days. And then at that point, I really thought to myself, well, there's no point. It's on day three of that that I should have just stopped and just halfway through day three, gone, no, like, this isn't worth it. Um, but, you know, it really taught me that point. It's so like, I don't have to always kind of push myself right to the very end all the time. I'm not, like, taking a break and those things is fine. It's not, it's not a bad thing to kind of sit back and take a breath and come back to it another time. Um, so for me, that was a big kind of moment for me. And I've never, now my painting, I'm far straighter with myself. I, I do no more than three hours in one day at a time. I do no more than three days in a row. And sometimes I'll just do three days in a row and do an hour and a half, two hours each day, and that's it. And it was a really good thing for me, and I feel so much more comfortable now. And it's, it allows me to enjoy my time a lot more. I'm not tired all the time. I can go see friends more. I can have friends up here more. I can, enjoy kind of my family time more and all those things. It's kind of weird how these things always lead into one leads into the other all the time. And 
you know, there's always, always have to try and remember those kind of moments and remember kind of what you learn from them going forward. Absolutely, yeah. Your, your book is called The Power of You, your latest book, the one that you just mentioned there, that the Everest picture is on the front of it. And in this book, you talk a lot about how important it is to accept our past and to become free of it and move forward. And I think people will find it incredibly inspiring that you have managed to do that with your injury. And not only have you done that, but you've also found a skill that you wouldn't have found before that you have really you're you're honing that skill and you're working hard on it you're still very ambitious as a person aren't you yeah i mean i think along the way i've also just been very lucky and a lot of stuff's just kind of fallen in my way i've got to point out where i'm trying to pre-accident i was very um kind of unwilling to take chances or opportunities that came my way that were offered to me. I could, I mean, I've go through so many times that I could have done way more with my life and the opportunities I had and all the things I took for granted. So now when I go into things, I always think, rather than think what the worst outcome of a situation is, it's always, oh, what might be the best outcome? And if it doesn't go right, that's fine. It's not like, I don't, it doesn't really affect me anymore. Um, and yeah, it's kind of pushed me to, when I do do something now, it's got to be, I really want to do well at it. I want to kind of make sure I'm giving it my all and all, and just get the most out of it, whether it's get the most out of it just for me doing something. Um, and yeah, going forward, I'm kind of just seeing what's going to happen and see what plan pans out for me. But yeah, it's kind of a weird, I don't know, it's looking back at kind of the two people I was pre-accident Henry and post-accident Henry is deep down I think I'm very much the same person kind of the quieter one of the family the more reserved one but I'm far more outgoing far more willing to do things than I ever was I mean if we had this conversation pre-accident you better get two words out of me per answer you get a teenage grunt and that's it if you're lucky and let's be honest we probably wouldn't be having this conversation yeah no exactly yeah that's a great point <laughs> No, exactly. I mean, all these things, I've been so lucky to do along the way. It's great. It's, uh, that's why I try and make the most of them and enjoy them as, as much as I can. Absolutely. How, lo- how long did it take, Henry, how long did it take your family to transition from feeling sorry for you to treating you just as Henry, part of the family again? And I'm sure if you've got three brothers, they must like take the piss out of you a little bit and, you know, and sort of really... You know, be be the big brothers and the little brothers again. Treat you as a normal family member rather than pussyfooting around yeah. you. I mean, they started to take the piss out of me all the time. But it was only when I was starting to get free stuff and go to free events that suddenly <laughs> became a whole lot nicer. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was actually um, from quite early on. I remember um, the day after I landed back in England, I was in uh, intensive care. And the day after I landed was the day my brothers came and saw me. And, you know, obviously it was like the emotions were off the scale. We can't tell you how much we all cried that day. You know, they took took in turns to just kind of come up and hug me. And, you know, the tears were just endless. Um, and it was like, it was hugely emotionally charged day. But, you know, it was great that we were able to kind of feel that together. And, you know, 
share that to a point what was, you know, sadness, what was kind of a life changed, our lives changed as a family. Um, but we're able to kind of get through it together. We didn't hold, we didn't hold anything back, um, which is, which allowed us to actually kind of move on quite quickly as a family. Obviously we had a lot of kind of acceptance go through down the line through kind of what was still to come and all those things. But at that point, that was when we would start getting back to taking the piss out of each other and doing things because, you know, that's what brothers do. That was our normality. That's what, that, that was our kind of way back in um, and our way to move forward again and, you know, to be there for each other. And in, I've been, you know, my brothers are all going through, my whole family are going through huge kind of moments in their lives at that point. Um, obviously, my mum, you know, mother of four boys, there's a lot going on. <laughs> She's trying to keep control of all us. Dad at the time, well, dad runs a business, but obviously is here after the crash. So he's trying to, you know, keep that afloat. And obviously his workers trying to keep them employed and all these things. My oldest brother was just about to go into his final year of uni. Uh, Will, um, so Tom's the oldest one, then Will was just um, in his second year of professional rugby. Younger brother Dom was going to his GCSEs. So, you know, those, these are big moments in their lives as well. And, um, they're incredible. What they're able to kind of manage and cope with and, you know, still be there for me when, you know, I never really had to turn to my family at any point and say, can you come? Can you be there? Can you do this? They were just there. There was no kind of question of that. They were, they were there for me um, without hesitation. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a beautiful thing, I think. Uh, yeah, and very, um, very inspiring to have that family unit around you, I think, you know, um, and probably went a long way to help you get through this process. Oh, yeah, big time, isn't it? Because to me, it was that, obviously for me, there's a point, you know, when I was in that water where, in my head and in, I, you know, I was thinking, you know, this may, at one point, this may never have happened. There are times in Portugal where, you know, I could have easily not survived and those moments could never have happened. Um, so for me, it's just great to have them there and see them and, you know, think about, at that point, you know, we, we were thinking about the future, about what might happen. It was just that moment, it was there. And, you know, I was... Again, I've been extremely lucky in fact the support network we've had has, for me, for my family, um, has been has been incredible. Like it's it's really hard to like explain kind of what it, it did for us and has done for us and you know how much it still means to us. Eleven years on, um, I mean, my everyone knew that you know we're family, eaters, mothers full feeder, you know, calf, Greek separate, loved, fed them and all those things. And so when mum was in the hospital with me all day, we always would just, the boy brothers just come home and there'd be food parcels on the doorstep without kind of a name, without a kind of wanting to be thanked for what they've done. It was just, here's our token, here's how we want to help. Here's, and those kind of moments just are incredible. And, you know, it just makes you think so much about kind of gestures to each other and all these things we do. You know, even in times now, we've seen it. We've seen people really kind of stick up for each other and be there and offer support. And, you know, so there's great sides of people that we need to kind of really kind of show to the world and show people that, you know, people are good. These are 
we're all good people inherently we're good people we want to help each other we want to look after each other and you know i saw it in bucket loads during that time and for years after it was still these things were still happening can i ask you a very frank question um Henry Fraser is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. That's what J.K. Rowling says. That's what's on all the marketing blurb and stuff for your books. Was there ever a moment, Henry, where you thought you didn't want to go on and that you wished that you weren't still alive? Um, to be honest, not really. Maybe in the early days of Portugal, when kind of really bad, I was having body temperatures of 40, 41 degrees at the time. Um, you know, the really kind of basic levels of temperature normally coma inducing and yeah I think at those points I was really struggling but there's never I don't think there's ever a point in my head where really I've never not wanted to I mean the, the worst day I had in hospital was the only day I think that I ever questioned why me kind of that went through those usual questions I guess um, but no I think I don't know no, I've never to be honest no it was just I never I never had that that, that determination it wasn't because of that or anything. I just don't think the thought ever really occurred to me. And I guess because in my head, up until that really bad day, I always had this kind of seed of denial that was just lingering. I'm thinking, you know, maybe that nurse in Portugal was wrong. Maybe other people have been wrong. Maybe I'm going to walk out of hospital. Maybe my life will be the same as it was. Um, and I think that kind of stopped me from ever having those thoughts. Um, so yeah, no, to, um, to be honest, no, no. Good. I think that's, yeah. I think for people as well to hear that, um, I think that in itself is such a strong message and you are mentally one of the strongest people I've ever spoken to. You're very, very positive. Everything, everything that you've mentioned every step of the way, you've, you've really examined that moment and you've, to me, you've turned it around and looked at it in a positive way and how it can drive you forward rather than sort of hankering after something that couldn't have been and can't be anymore. Yeah, I've always, you know, going back to this kind of how I was pre-accident, I always, I always let things kind of dwell, I always let things hang on me. If things went wrong or, you know, I just felt a bit off and or things in the past happened, this way of thinking isn't, this isn't going to help me progress. This isn't going to help me you know, get off the ventilator, this isn't going to help me get to the rehab or this isn't going to help me get home. This isn't going to help me go back to school and finish my A-levels. So if I had those thoughts, it would always be like, no, like this is, I'd always just ask myself the question, kind of why, why, why are these things like waiting on me? Why are these, why are these things annoying me? Or this, that and the other. And, you know, I always had two options out the other end of that question of if if I could if the answer was something I couldn't change, I couldn't deal with, then I'd just say to myself, and I still don't now, kind of in my head or sometimes I lie to myself, I go, well, to move on. There's nothing I can do to change that and it's not going to help me dwelling on it. Or if the answer is I can change it and if I need to speak to someone or say something to someone, then I'll do it. Because that made me feel better and I'll just deal with the situation as it is. And those things really helped me kind of deal with whatever kind of things pop up in my day-to-day life or whatever. You know, I just have all these different, I guess, kind of mechanisms of, of doing things that I think are now so kind of ingrained in my own head that I don't have to think about them so much. They just become part of my daily life. It's, 
you know, they're not things that just happen overnight. You have to work at it, they take time. I mean, my acceptance of everything, um, I don't think really happened until probably about 13 months after my accident when I was back at school and I was boarding during the week and suddenly that was kind of the final bit for me where I was like, oh, I'm now just me and my carer and by myself and I don't have my family with me every day. Um, so it was a process and there were steps along the way and I can recognise those bits along the way now. So it's not always about, it's about telling people to kind of, you've got to have patience along the way. You've got to be patient with yourself and others big time. It's, these things aren't an overnight remedy at all. They're just kind of all starting blocks to the next point and to the next point until eventually and hopefully you kind of are able to accept what's happened and, and then move on. As you say, you're very future focused on the positive. That is, that's the frame of mind, but it hasn't been easy to get to that, that place, but that is what you are. Yeah, and it's all just tiny steps. I mean, I take it back into so the really bad day I had in hospital was the very first day I was put into a wheelchair for the first time. And at that point, I was still, um, still on a tracheostomy in my throat. Still, so unable to breathe independently, could barely hold my own head up. So I was put in this big wheelchair, a really high back, a headrest, armrest, huge bulky thing. You know, I love being out of bed. It's the first time I've been out of hospital bed in two months. Um, and then I was able to kind of get around the hospital, see all the bits of my friends and family had spoken about. And I was like, it's great, it's fantastic. Went outside, it was late summer, it was still warm. About to come back in and I saw my reflection for the first time. First time since the night before my accident or the morning of the accident. You know, last time I saw myself, I was this fit and healthy 17-year-old boy. You know, gymmed a lot, all those things. And suddenly, at that point, I lost four stone. I was so, just this kind of razor-thin young boy in this big chair. Still couldn't breathe by myself. And it was at that point then I went back to my room. Kind of asked my mum to draw the curtain around my bed and I just lost it completely, completely broke. Uh, mum was hugging me I just wanted to be able to hug my mum and I couldn't even do that and I was just like this is just awful this is the worst brothers came and saw me and I cried dad came and saw me and I cried and just throughout the, early, the whole night until the early hours there wasn't too uh, early hours in the morning that I suddenly said to myself well you know there's no point me being sad or angry about what's happened I may as well just get on with this and that allowed me to kind of focus my mindset on the things I could do, things I was able to do, rather than always looking at what I can't do going forward. And then for me, that's what I then suddenly was like, okay, now I'm going to set myself goals. At that point, my goal was to get off the ventilator, but as a long-term goal, that's pointless because there's a million steps along the way I had to, I had to reach. And so they started to wean me off the ventilator. The first day was five minutes off the ventilator. And then I had an oxygen tank attached to the tracheotomy. And, you know, my, my effort that day was five minutes all day. That was my focus. Next day, it was 10 minutes. Next day, it was 15, 20. Then we go half an hour, 45 minutes. So, you know, these are tiny, tiny fractions of a day over weeks, over a month and a half, two months it took. You know, these were all, every day I knew the goal I was setting myself was achievable. I knew that I could reach it. But that didn't stop me from kind of recognising that progress I was making 
I would kind of I would enjoy that progress. I would know that I've hit a target, and I'd recognise it. I'd tell myself, and I'd be happy about my, to myself about reaching it because it's great, and I love I love that. And that's how I've taken each stage. That's how I take everything now. It's just these tiny steps, and they're manageable and they're achievable. They're not, and you know, once you break it down, suddenly, come the end of it, I was off the ventilator faster than anyone my injury had done at that point in hospital. I was out of hospital faster than anyone my level of injury before. And those weren't my goals. <laughs> those weren't things I wanted to achieve. They only happened because I was completely changing my mindset how I was approaching these things. And, you know, yeah, there were setbacks on the way. There were times when, you know, I wasn't able to always increase my time in the ventilator, off the ventilator. You know, I wasn't, those things suddenly weren't phasing me. I wasn't thinking oh, that's rubbish, like, this is awful. I'd look back to those other days I had made progress and think, oh, they were good, look how far I've already come. Even if it's only 15 minutes, I've done 15 minutes. Like, these, these are good, I'm, I'm, enjoy, I'm enjoying this, this is fun. <laughs> I think that, that, that thing you said, uh, focusing on what you can do and not on the things you can't do, I think that's something that we can all probably do a lot more of. Yeah, I mean, now I could... <laughs> I could list countless things of all the things I can't physically do. I can't. I, I mean, we could be here for kind of ten to <laughs> three-hour recording. There's no point again me looking at that. I want to look at you know. I'm still able to paint. I'm still able to go out and enjoy my time with friends and my family. I'm still able to you know enjoy the things that still mean a lot to me. I'm can my work. Yeah, my work is painting, going out and public speaking, and I'm challenging myself with those things and. You know, there's not many people that get to say they kind of really get to every day kind of do things that they really love doing or want to do. And at the moment I start looking at my life in that way, I'm actually very lucky that I get to do those things. Henry, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It really has. I mean, we're very lucky on this podcast because we do get to speak to people who are very positive and inspiring. But it's been exceptionally wonderful to talk to you. And I urge people to look you up on social media and look at your website so that they can look at your fantastic art because it really is wonderful and your book the latest book the power in you is motivational and inspirational and um, you are you really are I think somebody that we can all learn from so thank you for your positivity and thanks for doing all that you do well, thank you very much and yeah thanks for having me on as well really before you go henry we have one thing we'd like to ask you about we have something on the podcast called the happy jar we'd like to ask our guests at the end of the, um, our chats with them about what sorts of things they would put in their happy jar so we normally ask for there's three sort of things that you that make you happy you know those it could be a moment it could be somewhere you like going it could be a place it can be a memory. And what we'll do, Henry, we're going to do a special episode of the podcast where we combine all of our guests and our own happy thoughts uh, and, and things that they've put into the happy jar and then base a whole episode around that. And this is an idea that came about because I have a happy jar in my house. And if any of us in the, in the family are feeling a little bit low and feeling a little bit down... You can go to the happy jar, all of us, and we can open up this little piece of paper and we read the thought and it just lifts your moment, lifts your mood. Uh, and that's how we came up with it. So we thought it'd be a nice thing to put on the podcast. My kind of happy place for me is at my easel um, when I'm painting. You know, I get to kind of be there in my own world. I get to shut out everything else. I get, it's just me, my paints, the canvas, and I 
you know, it's just me. I don't need to worry about anyone else or anything else. And I enjoy that. And it's, again, like I said, it's that same enjoyment I had when I was a kid. Another happy place for me, weirdly, is um, when I'm out giving talks, sharing, sharing my kind of story and everything. Because for me, it's public speaking is the thing that used to terrify me more than any, anything else in the world. Um, and, you know, it's like I can't, I even, I mean, I've come against to tell you actually how much it terrified me. And I used to kind of fake feign illnesses and injuries and sit in the medical center at school just to skip lessons, get out of doing these things. But now it's a huge part of my life and it still makes me kind of uncomfortable and nervous at the start and the journey and all those things. But the moment I'm there, the moment I do it, I love it. And it's a rush and I have to keep reminding myself that, you know, these are good things for me to kind of push myself out of my comfort zone. It's not very often, but, you know, it's good we have our comfort zones. It's great to kind of be cosy and, but every now and then it's good to kind of push ourselves a bit and try those things. So for me, at the moment I finish those talks, I love it. I'm kind of getting a buzz. I get this rush that, you know, I guess I missed out on for years. Um, and I guess finally it's, um, you know, when if I'm out with my friends or, you know, when as a family we're together, those moments are really special. Um, you know, can't always remember the end of all, all those moments, but um, but the parts I do remember are always good fun. Uh, because I think as groups now, we just, we all enjoy it that much more. We kind of, they're just happy times. They're just fun. It's always, they're always fun moments. There's kind of nothing that, you know, brings it down and, you know, the more of those moments we get to enjoy, the more we get to share together, the better. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. They are three very good, happy jar thoughts. <laughs> yes. Thank Henry, you. thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's honestly, it is incredibly inspiring to talk to you and you are a remarkable human being. So yeah, thank you so much. And I can't yeah. wait. I can't yeah. wait to see you uh, at work. I love watching you you on Twitter, Henry, and watching the paintings that you're working on. I love the tigers too. Yeah, I love your animals. So keep up with the animals, the wildlife. It's gorgeous. <laughs> thank Thanks, Henry. Thanks, Thanks so Henry. much, ma'am. Well, that is something for us all to think about for a long, long time, isn't it? Henry's story and how he has move forward with his life in such an incredibly positive way yeah definitely the thing that really struck me like and I said it when we were chatting to him as well is that do the things you can do and don't do the things you can't do I think that really I just think that so important to remember for all of us you know we get so hung up on the things we yeah the things we can't do actually just yeah really put more energy into things you can and the bit for me as well that resonated because I I talk to people a lot about this He talked about how he slowly, 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 in those very early days, immediately after he's had his accident, how he slowly built up to having a longer time off the ventilator. And it was five minutes, and then it was 10 minutes, and then it was 15 minutes. And that took months Mm -hmm. to get to the the place. And I talk a lot uh, about that. And it's something we revisit again and again on this podcast, how you have to have, you have to carve time out for yourself. And people, oh, no, I can't. I'm busy. I haven't got that time. And even if it is just five minutes, even if it is just 10 minutes, even if it is just half an hour. I mean, I find myself thinking, I've run out of time to do some exercise today. It's not worth it. But I've got half an hour. Even if, you know, the kids have gone to bed, I've had dinner. I can still do, even if it's just half an hour of stretching, 
just to do that. If you can find that time, it is so important. And that from Henry to build up incrementally to the to the point where he was off a yeah, ventilator. Amazing. Gosh, that hammers it oh, home, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, more so than ever. We've had some lovely. We have, we have, and there's one I must been wanting to read out for the last few weeks because we've been having these beautiful illustrations being sent to us via Twitter by the Art Hive. They are at Deersley Art Hive is their handle, and I'd like to read out the message they sent. They said I needed to hear again, Um, and this is talking about the uh, last week's episode with Anita um, and B two which I really, really enjoyed. And actually, this week, I have been doing some oil pulling. Have you? Now, if you haven't listened to last week's episode and you don't know what we're talking about, then you should. But Anita and Bitu Korshal um, follow an Ayura verdict lifestyle, which basically is the um, the knowledge and science that is a 5,000-year-old Indian, uh, 5, Indian um, belief system. And there's lots of good stuff in there. It's not, somebody said to me on one of my social feeds, I went, oh, isn't this just a marketing discussion? I went, no, it's no, not. Yes, they have this, they do have this brand, but it's not about that. It's a lifestyle thing. So you've been oil pulling, which means you've been sloshing with oil in your mouth. To coconut co- oil. Coconut oil. To, I do yeah, that. Yeah. I've been doing Yes. Yeah, no, it's been really good, actually. I've really enjoyed it. And I've been having um, a hot water with lemon, which is also what uh, Anita suggested. So that was, yeah, so I've been getting into some good routines this week. This is all about that uh, podcast is if you need better well-being, a little bit of positivity uh, with Giles and Julia. Hope is found in honour of grief, kindness, acceptance to live on and learn how to begin again, to breathe and sit with the ones I have lost comforts me. That's lovely, isn't it? Nice, That's isn't beautiful it? Yeah. because Anita spoke with such calmness and such loveliness about how to deal with grief uh, because they had a, a, a tragic loss in their life. And mm. she talks beautifully about how to move on from that. Um, uh, not move on, how to live with that in a positive way. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you very much for that message. And we really love seeing your illustrations each week. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to, um, well, I might have to, print some off and frame them they're quite they're really 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 lovely they're lovely aren't they yes so have a look at those lovely illustrations and yeah we'll we'll try and incorporate them somehow into the podcast maybe we can use them for one of the episodes but we'll certainly repost them on our social media feeds we should yes well i'm gonna go away a happier more positive person after this week absolutely yeah absolutely hugely inspired by henry and yeah i'm gonna go off and do a bit of oil pulling i think go and a bit of oil pull and give mittens a little tickle i will i'll have a little stroke with mittens and take more pictures of him being weird (laughs) 